Good morning, happy campers. It is good to see you, and I'm excited about what God has for us this morning. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking at this passage, the first part of it this morning, verses 18 through 24. And then I want to show you how it concludes tonight, verses 25 through 29. But this morning, just 18 through 24 is the object of our study. It's been a week of talking about worship. And I want to ask you this morning to think with me for a few minutes about what it is that's real to you. What in your life is more real than anything else in your life? What is it that you count on? You know that this is there for you no matter what is going on in your life. For some of you, it's, it's a place. It's your hometown. That is where you feel safe and what you count on and you, you love that place. Maybe it's the house you grew up in. For some of you, it's your, it's your parents. You have a really stable home life and they're encouraging and supportive of you. For some of you, it's, it's not that. Well, what's real to you, what's most significant to you, what you think about is that friend, a close friend who understands you, who really gets you. Maybe you've known them for a long time. Childhood friends, closer than brothers, that kind of a thing. So whether it's a place or a relationship or, or maybe it's something in the future, maybe that's what you think about. Perhaps your life is not all you would like it to be and you think about what's next. And maybe that's what's most real to you, something that isn't even here yet, but that's what occupies your mind and that's what you're kind of counting on and that's what you're living for and that's what you're striving for. You know, the, the day that you can graduate from high school and, and get out from under your, your parents' house and uh, move out, get a job. Maybe there's something in the future that's compelling you, that's attractive to you. Some of you, there is not something in your life right now that is a reality that you hold on to. It's something that is out there, something you hope for. Maybe it's a friendship or a relationship that you long for, that you imagine. Maybe it's a certain career, something you'd like to do with your life, something you aspire towards. Think with me for a minute about what's real to you, what's real to you now and what's real to you in the future. When you think about five years from now, when all but a, a select few of you will have graduated from high school, seven years for the rest of you, where will you be? What will your life be like? And then fast forward your thinking another 10 years. Where will you be 10 years from now? If you're 16, you'll be 26. I'm good at math. What will your life be like when you're 26? Does that seem old to you? What about 20 years from now when you're 36? What about 56? 
Will you live to be 76? Will some of you make it past 76? I mean, think about what's real to you now, what's real to you when you're 36, what's valuable to you, what matters most to you, what realities define you. Think about yourself as a 36, 46-year-old. Will it be different than the things that you value now? Will it be different the things that are most precious to you, that are realities that you hold on to no matter what happens in your life? Do you have that much foresight to think that far ahead? And now for a moment, think about a thousand years from now. No matter how much science advances, nobody's gonna make it here on this earth a thousand years from now. But in a thousand years, what realities will define you? What will be most important to you 1,000 years from now. The things that you hold on to now, that define you now, the things you aspire to now, in 1,000 years, will they be the same or different? I started explaining to you last night that the book of Hebrews is a book that was originally a sermon. A sermon written down and then delivered to a group of Christians, probably residing in Jerusalem, right before the destruction of the temple. Their life was becoming increasingly difficult. They were feeling and understanding the, the difficulties of persecution, and their realities were being shaken. The stuff that they had, and, and many people are defined by their possessions, the things that they want, the stuff that they've earned, the home that they've built, their possessions were being confiscated. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that. The reality of, of their very lives being taken away from them was something that was on the horizon in Hebrews 12 verse four. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood, he tells them. So these Christians were fledgling. They were struggling. They were questioning what realities mattered to them most because they needed to know what they were holding on to. They looked to the future and they weren't sure they had another 10 years. They weren't sure they had another 20 years. And so he was asking them what they were going to do with Christ. You see, the Messiah had come and the gospel had been announced. God's plan for the ages from creation to the fulfillment and consummation of all things in the end was now at its high point of revealing God's perfect plan to save the human race through Jesus Christ, his son. God incarnate had dawned onto the scene and God had finally spoken in such a way that no other revelation was required. You see, in former times, God had spoken through prophets. He revealed himself to Moses, to Abraham, to Noah, to select spokesmen who would warn God's people about what God wanted them to do. But now, at the coming of Christ, at his incarnation and his three years of, of ministry, of teaching the people about God, after asserting claims to be God's own son, to be God of very God, Jesus was 
crucified on that hill outside of Jerusalem. And his disciples were devastated. And as they buried their master and their teacher, they wondered what reality would define them. The last three years of their life had been all about the Messiah, all about following this rabbi, all about dodging after those who were trying to get them and trap their teacher. And now they'd finally succeeded. Jesus was dead. His most intimate disciples who had followed him publicly and closely went into hiding, wondering what realities defined them. They had learned about the kingdom of God from their master. They had learned about God's holiness, his perfection. They'd learned about forgiveness and compassion. They'd learned about God's great power demonstrated through Jesus as he eradicated disease from Palestine, as he quieted storms, as he multiplied one lunch to feed 15,000 people. They saw his power and now he was gone. And they wondered what realities would define them in days and years and decades to come. But then everything changed when Jesus showed up again. You see, the Son of God could not be contained by death. In fact, it was his purpose to come and to die. And so Jesus, to vindicate all his claims, to show that everything he ever said was true and right, and that he was indeed God of very God, he rose from the grave on that third day, on a morning, a Sunday morning like this one. Jesus then appeared to his closest followers, and then to dozens, and then hundreds of other witnesses, and this was the beginning of the church. Jesus told them to wait for the Spirit to come, and they obeyed him, and then God brought Jesus up to his presence. Jesus ascended in front of their very eyes, and the Holy Spirit came and filled them, and the church began, and formerly frightened and cowardly and foolish disciples became bold and powerful preachers announcing the gospel, the good news that God has spoken in a final way through Jesus Christ, that the long expected Messiah of the Jewish people had arrived. And as this message went out, it was realized just as Jesus had promised that this was a message not just for God's chosen people, Israel, but to go out to the ends of the earth. And these evangelists, former fishermen, they never went to seminary. They never had any training in public speaking. All they knew was that Jesus was alive. And so they went out and they told first in the synagogues and then in these cities around Jerusalem, but now all kinds of people were coming to see Jesus as Lord of Lord and, and, and God himself and the, the fulfillment of all God's promises and the consummation of God's ultimate plan for his creation. Jesus was being worshipped by all these people who had formerly been monotheistic and, and known, I can only worship God, but now they had realized that God was triune. It was Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and so Jews were flooding into the church and these other Jewish people were ostracizing them, kicking them out of the synagogues, persecuting them, saying that they were polytheists, that they were worshiping a man who was cursed by being killed on a cross. But they pressed on because they knew that this message was their only hope, 
It was a reality that defined them. And they knew that this was, would be what their life was all about. And people streamed in to hear this message about Jesus, the only one who could forgive them of all of their sins, the only one who could give them direct access to God, the one who lived, who died in their place but now lived. And so centurions, Roman soldiers were getting saved. People who were sick and impoverished on the streets were streaming into the church and receiving forgiveness of sins and becoming disciples of Jesus. And they were treated on the same level as, as those who were rich or noble or, or well-known who also came to faith in Christ. Some of them were rulers and governors and people of significance, and some were nobodies, but in the church they were all on equal footing. They were all forgiven. They were brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. This was amazing. But then things got harder. The difficulties that Jesus faced, he promised his followers that they would face them too. That those who hated Jesus and killed Jesus would hate them and kill them. And so they realized this now because it was happening to them. Their stuff was being taken away. They were now being in abject poverty. All they had now was Christ and for some of them, the cost was way too much. And so they considered returning to Judaism. Some of them considered returning to their former manner of life. It was, it, was a, it was an option for them to look back over their shoulder and see how they used to live before Christ. And for some of them, it was very tempting to go back to their life of sin, to go back to their life of, of religion that was acceptable. I mean, everybody in the ancient world was religious to some degree. They worshiped everything. They worshiped anything, statues of gold, portable little silver trinkets, all of it could be objects of worship. They worshiped just like people in New Mexico. They worshiped the earth. They worshiped the mountains and the trees and gods and goddesses. And no one gave them a hard time for it. But the Christians were being persecuted, violently persecuted, increasingly so. And so they wondered, how am I going to press on? Maybe it's fine to just go back to Judaism, to go back to worshiping God in the old way, to bringing animal sacrifices to the temple, to reading the Old Testament, to, to knowing that that is the one true God. And, and this Jesus thing is just too hard. And so this, this pastor concerned because he needs them to know that to turn your back on Jesus is an eternally fatal error, preaches this sermon and then puts it in letter form and sends it to these believers. And the book of Hebrews has one clear message, it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Better than any alternative, better than any other religious system, better than any other person who claims to be a spokesman for God. The book of Hebrews opens by saying that God has revealed himself in this final word in his one and only son and that nothing compares to him. This whole sermon in, called the book of Hebrews just continues to show the greatness and supremacy of Jesus. 
that Jesus is worth following, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is, is greater as the crown of creation, that Jesus has all authority, all supremacy, that he has the preeminence, that his sacrifice is better than all other sacrifices because it's final. That the priesthood, and, and it wasn't just Israel who had priests that, that wanted to get people to God, there was all kinds of religious priests claiming all kinds of ways to get to God. And even the genuine priesthood that was now no longer valid in the temple, it was obsolete, was being shown by this author that Jesus was the only way to God, now and forever, not just for Jewish people, for all people. That he was this great mediator, the go-between between God and man, and that the only way to, to have access to God was to have faith in Jesus, to believe on him, turn from your sins, turn from false religion, turn from thinking that you can prove that you're good enough to be in God's presence and come to Jesus. It's the only way to be saved. That was the message. That's what they had held on to. And now this author is trying to tell them, don't give up, press on. And that kind of summarizes the first 11 chapters. He, he closes that part by saying, look at all those who have gone before you. The heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. They didn't even know what you know. They didn't know all the intricacies of the, the gospel story of Jesus's life and ministry. They never heard his, his wonderful teaching. They never saw his compassionate deeds. They never saw his miraculous power. They never saw the founding of the church and the apostles preaching. They never saw the Gentiles streaming in. They never heard about all the, the power of the spirit at work in his people. They had never witnessed all the glories that the New Testament revealed to the followers of God, but yet they lived by faith, and they finished their race. And so he's telling these believers, and by association, these believers, that you too must finish the race by faith. And as he gets into chapter 12, he's trying to show them what realities ought to define them. And he does so in verses 18 through 24 by showing them two contrasting realities. The old way that God dealt with his people and the new way that God deals with Christians. And so this is a passage that has very powerful and obvious significance to you, teenager at summer camp 2017. I don't think any of you are contemplating a return to your Judaistic roots probably. But I think all of us have a tendency to listen to the lies of sin and to look over our shoulder at our former manner of life and to wonder if it's really worth it to be a Christian. There is a thousand worldviews vying for your attention, and all of them have one thing in common. They say that Jesus is not the only way. And then you have God's word about his son, the only way to be reconciled to God. And for your entire Christian life, described in Hebrews 12 as a race to be run, a pilgrimage to be journeyed on, you will hear those competing voices, those other worldviews saying, not just Jesus, 
but tolerance. Everybody's right. I went to the opera on Friday night because I'm fancy like that. And it was actually really cool. It was a comedy, and it was the whole thing was, was like a practical joke on this baron guy or monsieur or whatever they're called. He was fancy too, like me. And they had this extravagant party scene. And the whole concept of this party was this German phrase. I don't know how to say it in German, so I'm not going to try. Something like that. And it meant, as you like. This thing was written in 18-something. And the prevalent philosophy of the day is the same as it is today. 100 years later, almost 200 years later, as you like. The idea was is that this guy wanted these people to do whatever they wanted to do, to seek their pleasure, to find satisfaction, each one a different way, whatever makes you happy, whatever fulfills you, whatever satisfies your desires. That's the worldviews that compete with Christianity with the central message of Jesus is Lord, that you must follow him, that you must obey him, that he is the object of your worship and that he is the only way to God. They thought returning to Judaism, returning to the priestly system, returning to the sacrifices, you will be assailed with 10,000 different options that all try to urge you and beguile you and woo you into saying, well, maybe Jesus isn't the only way. Maybe the secular worldview is right. Maybe atheism has a good point. Maybe all world religions have some truth in them. You will hear these voices throughout your life, throughout your education, from your neighbors, from fellow citizens of your world, from your unbelieving relatives and friends, and they will urge you and they will judge you and some will even persecute you violently because you say Jesus is the only way to know God savingly. And so this message in these, this one little paragraph tries to show you what realities need to define you for the rest of your life. And by the rest of your life, I mean 10,000 years from now. Because if you hold on to these realities then the same things that define you now will define you then. What holds you sturdy in difficulties now will hold you sturdy 10 years from now when you're married, 20 years from now when your, your kids are getting a little bit older, 30 years from now when they're grown up, and 40 years from now when you're a grandparent, and, and 50 years from now when you're starting to, to get a little bit older, and 60 years from now when you're an aged person, and 70 years from now when you can see that death is closer, and 100 years from now when your earthly life is finished, what if the same realities defined you when you were 16 years old as define you when you're 96 years old and when you've been in God's presence for 10,000 years? These are the realities that I want to show to you in this passage of Scripture and to ask you if these are the things that matter to you most. So let's look at them. The passage has two parts, two paragraphs, or as I like to call them, two chunks. Verse 18 through 21 
describes what was calling them back, what they had come from. And for them, it was Judaism. He tells them seven brief things about it, and I'll just show them to you. They're, they're almost one-word phrases. For you have not come. Now, that's a favorite phrase of this preacher. He's going to tell them in verse 22, but you have come. So you see the contrast. First paragraph, you have not come. Second paragraph, you have come. He's talking about what they have not come to. And he tells them there are seven things they have not come to. And it's a description of God's former way of dealing with people. Now, God's former way of dealing with people, Judaism, namely the Old Testament, and maybe this is hard for you to understand because you're not familiar with the Old Testament like you are the new, but this, it shouldn't be difficult, so track with me here. God's former way of dealing with people was not wrong. It was just incomplete. The Old Testament has got all kinds of good news in it. It has the compassion and mercy of God. The Old Testament is good. David said, oh, how I love thy law. Jesus obeyed the Old Testament fully. But it wasn't complete until God brought the fullness of his son. And so this description goes like this. You have not come in coming to Christ to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Well, that makes a ton of sense, right? What are those seven things describing? Well, I'd like you to know it's a description of a particular scene in the Old Testament that most Jews would consider the important, the most important, and the central place of all of the Old Testament. I know that for those of you who don't study the Old Testament very much, there's just like a lot of weird stuff in there, you know, a lot of diseases and lists and things, some begats and stuff. But if you were to carefully know the Old Testament like these Jewish people did, you would know that one of the highest points in the Old Testament was when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. You remember it from the Bible stories. Remember flannel graph. I'll put some up. Tunk Mountain. And on that flannel graph, tunk, I put a mountain. I put a little guy, Moses, long beard, happy face. Moses never has a happy face in any pictures I've ever seen, but the Bible says that he was the most blessed man. So my Moses, smiling ear to ear. Tunk, Moses, he's on the top of the mountain. All kinds of tents and people at the bottom. You liking this? Flannel graph, kids, fun. Now I'm gonna add to this little scene these seven things. Ready? You have not come to what may be touched. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means it's a physical place. It's an actual mountain. It's not like an imaginary mountain. It's a real place. You could go there today in the Middle East and see a lo location that they think is Mount Sinai. It was an actual mountain. Okay, so it's not a place that can be touched, what our reality is. A blazing fire. Let me add that to the flannel graph. Whoosh! I just burnt our flanograph down. What's the next one? Darkness. Picture the scene. There's fire, but there's darkness. 
What else was this scene when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on the top of that mountain with all of Israel below? It was a physical place with blazing fire. Humans normally avoid fire, right? Darkness, gloom, and a tempest or like a whirlwind of a storm. This is not a vacation destination. This is not a lovely spot. This is described best with this word that you all know, scary. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a whirlwind of a storm, and the sound of a trumpet, some blaring, blasting sound, and then finally another sound, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You see, God spoke to Moses and he made it clear that no one should touch this mountain. Look at verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Do you have any beasts? Do you? Not with you, but in your life. You have a dog. If you have a dog, you probably have one of two things. You have a dog, right? Do you have a fence? See, you gotta have a fence or what's your dog gonna do, bud? He's gonna run away. It's what they do. Beasts wander. I'm an urban chicken farmer. I love my chickens. And if I don't have the right things going on, I will lose my chickens. They'll wander free. So I have built certain coops and things to keep my chickens where my chickens dwell so my ladies are safe. (laughs) Beasts wander. And it was one of the pernicious problems in Israel that their animals would wander onto the mountain. But God's law said that this mountain is holy. It's where God will give a revelation of himself, namely the Ten Commandments, the law of God, to his people. And one of his rules will be that if even a creature, a goat, a sheep, your nice dog, wanders onto the mountain, the penalty is that that animal needs to be killed. If a creature couldn't even touch the mountain, then a person certainly certainly couldn't. And that's what this passage says. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses spoke personally with God. Moses saw a revelation of God in Exodus 17, 18, and 19 with his own eyes, a part of God's character. But even the great man of God, Moses, was afraid of God's presence. The scene that they're coming from is this, and this was the real way, this was the true God. This isn't 10,000 fake worldviews, this was the way that God had appointed for his people to see that God is holy and that they are sinful and that coming to God is not some cavalier thing where they just stroll into his presence, but blood was required that they were rebels by nature and by choice, that they were sinful, that they couldn't just walk into the presence of God for no reason. And that's the former way, a way of darkness and gloom, a way of frightening, terrifying holiness. It was the scene where the people were, like we talked about last night, receiving the law, Moses up on the mountain, the people partying below, engaged in sexual immorality and idolatry. Moses comes down in anger. He smashes the tablets. He prays to God to not destroy them. God grants Moses' prayer. He gives him a new copy of of the law of God. Moses brings it down. The people repent, and they'll always remember this moment, a high point in their history of when God forgave them. But this preacher reminds them what it was actually like. 
It wasn't a sweet time where they got the Ten Commandments and then they taught them to their kids with the ten fingers and you shall have no other gods, da-da-da-da-da. It was frightening. God revealed himself in his holiness and that's what had gone before. Now, verses 22 and following, 22 to 24. Just two verses and I want you to see a contrasting seven things. Notice that the first seven were just little individual words, right? Darkness, gloom, trumpet sounds, tiny little words. The second seven things are realities that are true for these people who had come to Christ. And they are the same realities that are true for every single one of you if you claim the name of Christ. These are the same realities for every single Christian who has ever lived this side of the cross. This is called the glory of the new covenant. This is the New Testament. This is the gospel. This is the seven things. They sound a lot like the things that Dr. MacArthur talked us through in that first Peter passage, your identity in Christ. If you are a Christian, these are the seven realities that ought to define you now, in the future, and for all eternity. And they contrast contrast the old way of getting to God, which is no longer available. It is now obsolete, and they stand in radical difference to everything that this world offers you and every other world religion offers you. Listen to these seven things. We'll look at them very quickly. Number one, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christians on your pilgrimage, what defines you? First thing is the city of God. He calls it Mount Zion. All through the Psalms, you hear about Mount Zion. It's the place where Jerusalem was built. It's the mountain on which the temple was. It was representative of the, of the presence of God. The temple was built there. Jerusalem was God's city. And he says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. So he's not talking about that little mountain in Israel in the, in the Near East that you could fly on a plane from Santa Fe with a lot of connections eventually and get to Jerusalem. He's talking about the heavenly version of that, God's presence. That's why he says in verse 22, now you have come. You now belong to a city that is a city of God. It's what Paul said to the Philippians, that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the earthly Zion was a meeting point for all the tribes of Israel. The heavenly Zion described here is your new destination. When you think about the finish line of your Christian life, Christians have always called it Zion, heaven, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. When you look forward to your existence, your final existence, to eternity as a Christian. What you have ahead of you is a mountain, and on that mountain is a city, and it's described here, and it's described in the book of Revelation as ascending from on high. You will live in a city that is perfectly glorious because God inhabits it, and all his people will be there. That's the first reality. 
that ahead of us in our lives is a city where our citizenship is, where we belong. Do you ever visit a favorite place? We like to drive up the coast in California and go to San Francisco. It's one of my favorite cities. I like it. It has billions of coffee shops. It has a bridge and a lot of homeless people. Those are all the things I like about it. And it's such a nice city that it's where you wanna be homeless, basically. If you're not gonna have a place to live, you wanna live in San Francisco, just on the corner. It's such an awesome place. I really like it. And we like to go there and we'll save up our money and we'll stay at a hotel and we'll go and see stuff and we, we go to San Francisco. Do you have a place like that, a place you love to go? Friend, there is no place on earth that compares to our final destination, a city of ultimate perfection, a city inhabited by God where there is nothing wrong, no sin, no tears, no hardship, only perfection. That's a reality that ought to define us. Why do you care what people think of you when this is not your final destination? Why do you care about being popular at school? Why do you care about being made fun of for being a Christian? You are going to only live in this current city, this current world. For this much time, you will be in that heavenly city, on the top of that heavenly mountain for all eternity, and everything will be made right. Let that mountain define you, and we'll hear more about it tonight. Second reality that should define you is described in verse 22. It's innumerable angels in festal gathering. What? What is festal gathering? How do innumerable angels in festal gathering define you? Well, angels are a big deal in the Bible. Deuteronomy 33 talks about 10,000 holy ones that attend God's presence. Daniel chapter seven talks about thousands of thousands of angels that serve God at his throne. Angels are those creatures that God created to worship him for all eternity. They're in his royal presence. They cover themselves before the face of God. They're all over the book of Revelation. Their job is to rejoice and praise God. They were made to worship. And when you become a Christian, when you receive the gospel, when you take hold of Christ by faith, a reality that defines you is that you will spend eternity with these holy, heavenly creatures, and those creatures will be wearing a certain kind of clothes festal garments. I'll translate that for you. Party clothes. Angels will be wearing their best stuff to celebrate the glory of God for all eternity. And you will be alongside of them, these creatures that are uh, in perfection, the ones that did not rebel against God but stayed in his presence, these holy and loyal angels. You will spend all eternity in their presence participating in what they were built to do, which is worship God. And they will be stunned to see the glory of God as he brings you into his family and makes you something higher than the angels, very sons and daughters of God adopted into his family, redeemed by the blood of his son, welcomed into his presence for all eternity, you will party with the angels forever. And these stunning creatures know how to party. Four-headed, winged, that's enough. Obviously, this is far beyond our human capacity to take it in. What if it was a reality that defined you? 
What if you made choices about what you did at school? What if every time you looked at a party, a sinful party, you were reminded of a greater party that will last way past midnight, that will not have one tinge of sinfulness in it, that will not be people rebelling against their creator and ruining themselves over and over again with debauchery. What if you thought about a party that was for all eternity on the horizon of your life if you are a Christian? I wonder if the music and the sounds of a party would forever be dim to you because of a greater festal gathering to come. Third reality, fellow believers. The city of God's the first one, the angels are the second one, the third one is fellow believers. Look what it says in verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Friends, maybe you don't have an easy family life, but in heaven, if you're a Christian, you will have a perfect family. Family does not last for all eternity. Marriage does not last for all eternity. Sons and daughters don't last for all eternity. Only spiritual relationships last for all eternity. You may be the only believer in your family. You may be lonely, you may be isolated. When it comes to eternity, you will have a massive family, uncountable brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation. You have spiritual parents and grandparents. You will be part of God's adopted family. You will live in perfect harmony harmony and joy, if the sweet parts of being in a family now appeal to you, if the love a family has and the common memories and adventures a family participates in on earth, on a vacation in the summer, whatever it is, if that has any appeal to you at all, imagine it with perfection and glory as you are adopted into God's family and your fellow believers are your family in a perfect expression of unity and joy and togetherness for all eternity. That's why the Bible repeatedly calls us heirs, adopted members. In Romans eight seventeen, heirs of the promise. What if that reality defined you? Fourth, look at what it says. What have we come to? God, the judge of all. God, the judge of all. Another reminder of his awesome holiness. It's kind of interesting, right? I mean, partying angels, a perfect city, an amazing family, intimacy. And then all of a sudden he says, God, the judge of all? Who brought that to the party? Why is he called God, the judge of all? Doesn't that sound like kind of a bummer? Does that sound like kind of judgy? I thought we were celebrating things. Why are we celebrating as a reality God the judge of all? Why would a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ say, yay, judgment? Dear Christian, the reason we say, yay, judgment, is because we know that when we stand before God the judge on that end day, that because of the forgiveness of Jesus, we will be vindicated from God's judgment. We will be forgiven. We will be said to be not guilty. You know, to be a Christian means that you don't fear God's judgment anymore. How glorious is that? The whole world is under the judgment of God in rebellion against God and his chosen son, but not you. 
You have fallen on your face and turned from your sins and said, Jesus is mine. I I seek him and his forgiveness. I, I follow him as a pilgrim on my Christian race. I want to be with him. And God's holiness in the Old Testament on that fiery mountain is not different than his holiness in the future. It's the same. It's just that we now have full and free forgiveness We are no longer underneath the judgment of God. Hooray, God, the judge of all, because we'll be vindicated from his judgment. Hebrews 10, 14 says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You no longer fear the judgment of God because you're forgiven of every sin you ever committed and every sin you'll ever commit. And then you'll sin no more. Number five, what's a reality that defines us? It's the church triumphant, 23, the end of it. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is just the same thing, except now we know that we will be righteous made perfect. No longer struggling with sin. If you're a Christian, you're, you're learning as a young believer to hate your sin. That your sin offers you pleasure, but only provides you guilt and pain and suffering and consequences. But a day is coming, a reality is coming when you will have a righteous spirit made perfect. That single offering, perfecting for all time, those who are being sanctified, this is, this is when you don't have to deal with sin anymore. Your brothers and sisters in heaven, your family in heaven will be God's family and they will be perfect. No one will poke you in the eye. No one will make fun of you. No one will treat you wrong. No one will think little of you. No one will mock you and belittle you. No one will sin against you, and you will not sin against them. Spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's a motivation to live that way now, isn't it? And isn't the church just a little taste of that when we act like we ought to act? We get to be a part of a family. We get to be a part of of a people seeking after holiness, and this will be the church in perfection. Number six, I love this one. And to Jesus. Simple, isn't it? He's called the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator is the go-between. But he says Jesus. He doesn't say Christ Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus Christ. He says Jesus. That was his human name, Yeshua. It's the one that his mom would have called when it was time for him to come in from playing as a little kid. It's his human name, a reminder that Jesus was a man. He was fully God and fully man. And so this mediator is the one who, as a man, lived perfectly before God, but as God offered a perfect sacrifice when he died on the cross, has opened up heaven for us, has been the mediator, the go-between of this new covenant, this new agreement, this new deal with God, that all who come to Jesus will be granted eternal life. And Jesus said it this way in John 1, 51, true. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus pictured himself as a ladder, and it's the only ladder that you can have that gets you to God, that gets you to heaven. It's not a real ladder, it's a man. It's Jesus Christ. In the same way, you could never get up on the top of this roof apart from a significant lift from a ladder, from a crane. You can never never get over that expense between sinful man and God apart from the bridge, the ladder that is Jesus Christ. 
Ultimately, we come to Jesus, our mediator of the new covenant. And seventh and finally, and yes, I just tricked you into listening to a 14-point sermon. (laughs) Seventh and finally, and this one's the sweetest one of all, we have forgiveness. Look what it says. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I love this so much. The blood of Abel. Get the flannel graph out again. Oh, my bad, I burned it with consuming fire. Remember the story. If you've only read three pages of the Bible at the beginning, you know this one. Cain and Abel. The first kids, the first brothers. And Cain, out of jealousy for his brother's offering being accepted, did what to his brother? Good, you're, you're still with me. Praise the Lord. He killed him. He beat him to death until he bled out into the ground. It was a violent and awful scene. The first sibling rivalry turned murderous. And Hebrews 11 reminds us that Abel's blood called for justice, vengeance. And God punished Cain because of what he did to his brother Abel. He cursed him and he marked him and he said that his blood, the blood of his brother, cried out from the ground for justice. So Abel's blood is speaking something metaphorically. It's saying that all sin, murder, hatred, jealousy, all sin cries out for justice to God. And God, because he's holy, will judge all sin. And so the cry of that first murder reached God's ears and he told Cain that judgment was coming. And he tasted the consequences then and there. And for from then to now, that blood of Abel has cried out in every murder and every crime and every theft and every hatred and every evil thought, all sins cry out for justice. Abel's blood cried out, justice, justice, justice. And God will give justice. He will punish every evildoer. He is, remember, the judge of all. But this verse 24 says that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does it mean? Jesus' blood that was shed on that cross speaks more eloquently And his blood meets every demand for justice. Abel's blood cries out for justice and says, be satisfied, someone make this right, get revenge. This isn't right, I was killed, I was not guilty. Jesus' blood says, I was not guilty, but I forgive all who trust in me. Jesus' blood speaks eloquently from the cross and meets every demand for the justice of God in satisfying his justice and in turning his wrath away because Jesus took on the very wrath of God. All the sins that you have done were put on Jesus and God poured his wrath out in his son so that he would never punish you once ever for all eternity. Jesus bore your sin. And in this way, you can know God with favor. 
You can know him for forgiveness and you can hear the voice of his blood. I mean, we see two visions of God here. The people in the first paragraph we looked at stood off in the wilderness and they saw gloom and darkness, but now they're said to draw near and they're beckoned to stay close and they're entering the gates of the new Jerusalem. Then it was about gloom and darkness and now it's about festal celebrations and partying with the angels and the ultimate realization of what it means to be in God's presence and worship him. In the former vision of God, the former Theophilus, the people begged God to speak through Moses and not speak directly to them. And now we are urged to listen directly to God. In the former theophany, even Moses himself said, I tremble with fear and no one dared to touch God's holy mountain. But in now the new reality, Jesus, the mediator, will be present to God's people as he beckons us to enter in and he promises us that he will return. In the old theophany, the old vision of God, God, sinful Israel is present, but in the new vision, in the new reality, the spirits of the just persons are made perfect. In the old reality, blood from violence called out for judgment on sin. In the new reality, only the sprinkled blood of Jesus will produce peace and mercy. In the old reality, worship was with fear and trembling and was far off from God. And in the new reality, there's awe and wonder and thankfulness and acceptable worship to God. It's my prayer that these realities would define us now and for forever. Heavenly Father, thank you for your dawning revelation of your Son. To know that the law commands us to run and to work, but doesn't give us feet or hands. But to know that the gospel brings good news and tells us to come, to fly to Christ, and it gives us the wings to do so, that we're free, that we have confident access to God because of free and full forgiveness. God, if there's one student here who doesn't know you savingly, show yourself to them. May they cry out to you to have your realities define their life forever. And for those who do know Christ savingly, may they persevere with these realities in mind, the truth of what the gospel is and who Christ is and what he's accomplished and how he's given us access to God. Father, may we have a vision of a mountain in the future where we will find rest and satisfaction where sin will no longer be a part of our lives, but we're with you for all eternity. We ask this in Jesus' matchless name.